you're dead to me. My will reads, fuck this up, and I'll haunt you for the rest of your fucking life. He's following me. What do you want? It's B again. Oh! Damn. To die. Somewhere outside the city. I told my mother, you're dead to me. No, that's not it. Um, hang on, hang on. Is this B again, or C? No, or... Uh, wait. M? Oh, we, we still haven't got a voice for M. Shit. Uh... Should we... Start doing Irish accents after all? Yeah, whatever. Fuck the Irish. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. I'm Christian. And I'm Jonas. Or you're C and I'm J? I don't know. Should we have full names? Or should we all be several letters, maybe? And because... That is confusing for all our listeners if you don't know which piece of literature we read for this time. Because let us tell you, this time it got weird. We read Crave by Sarah Kane. Sarah Kane is one of the most famous playwrights in British drama in the past 30 years. She's often seen as the poster child for what is called in-your-face theatre, this very extreme form of contemporary theatre where sex, violence and drugs and all other things are not kept off the stage, but basically put in-your-face, the face of the audience. Kane grew up in a very religious household before she became a writer, and this formed her writing to a large degree, as did her severe depression. Her plays were both celebrated and hated. Her first stage play, Blasted, features a man's eyes being sucked out by a soldier. The press hated it, but still she became very influential in her writing. Unfortunately, her mental sickness became worse and worse, and she finally committed suicide at the age of 28. The play, well, is it even a play? We're going to talk about that later. Does it have a plot? (laughs) Not really. It consists of four characters, C, M, B, and A, and they talk. Sometimes it seems to each other, sometimes at each other, sometimes past each other. Generally, there's not a lot of cohesion in the whole play. But, as you could tell by the little excerpt that we read, it literally starts with the words, You're dead to me. That really sets the tone. It is not a happy play. It is about suffering in a lot of ways. There is frequent discussion of sexual trauma, of pregnancy, anxieties about that, a lot of mention of death, and generally people seem to be struggling to come to terms with the world outside, but also with what's going on in their heads. I wanted to talk about this very incoherence at the beginning, because when I first started reading the play, I thought, ooh, that doesn't really have a structure as such. This doesn't really have a thread that you can say goes through it. This incoherence didn't turn out to be so much of a problem, though. I decided to just lean back and to just read the play, not worry about getting everything or missing something, and just let it flow through me. I didn't have a problem with the incoherence. Christian, what did you think about it? Me neither, but there is a certain tendency in the play to kind of lure you in. It is extremely intertextual. So there are these bits and pieces the different characters say. Sometimes they complement each other. Sometimes they seem to go beyond the text. Sometimes they refer to things we have no idea about and maybe only can kind of construe from other contextual clues. But there are many, many bits and pieces that also come from other texts. 
There are some quotes that come from Hamlet. What do you want? To die, to sleep, no more. Said by four different characters. There's a quote from the book of Job. Let the day perish in which I was born, let the blackness of the night terrified, let the stars of its dawn be dark. And there are also references to one of our favorite authors of all time, who has been probably the most influential source for Crave, T.S. Eliot and The Wasteland. That is really the big uh, comparison I would make as well. Crave is a dramatic form of the wasteland in a lot of ways. And similar to the wasteland, where I also just decided, okay, I'm not going to get all of this, but I'm going to get a general impression of it. I'm going to be able to let it wash over me. But that's exactly the opposite reaction to what I did. I tried to play detective. I tried to find, is there any reason to these illusions? Is there any way to differentiate these characters? Yeah, let's talk about the characters because they are only ciphers. They only have these initials. And that also contributes to the incoherence that to a certain degree, just reading the play, you have no idea who these characters are, how to differentiate them. Maybe it's better if you actually see the play, the people on stage speaking these lines. But in the beginning, at least, you're totally lost. And then you get into it and you realize that there are certain patterns, that there are certain things, certain traits that you can ascribe to these characters. For example, looking at the cast list, B and A are male characters. And at least with A, that becomes very clear. A has a certain tendency towards, let's, let's call it mansplaining, very elaborate, very erudite explanations. But on the other hand, he's also quite brokenhearted like all the characters are, which makes for an interesting contrast. B, I don't know that much about B. He's the character that uses foreign languages the most, which is also interesting. And of course, another connection to the wasteland, these quotes in foreign languages. Though here it's not Greek and Latin and German so much, it is still German and Spanish, but also Serbo-Croatian, which was, of course, in the 90s, a language of conflict and blasted. Sarah Kane's first play is very much connected to the whole Yugoslavia conflict. B is also the only character where we ever get anything approaching a name. M asks... David and B replies, yeah, after a beat. But we're not sure whether he replies, yes, I am David, I'm here, or whether it is to something else, because quite often threads disappear and then reappear. Um, I admire that you apparently managed to find out that uh, C and M are the female characters and B and A are male, but I would argue that could also shift throughout the play. There's nothing to say that these actually stay the same people throughout. It could also just be a total uh, helter-skelter. It could be, but I think there are some tendencies, and it becomes stronger with the female characters, actually. M seems to be an older woman who's more experienced, also more sexually aggressive, but also more disillusioned, maybe. Where C is, she's a wreck. She has experienced sexual trauma. And David actually seems also to be the name of the male character who raped her when she was a child, or at least very young. There are always, throughout the entire play, these hints that go towards some unseen or unheard of story that is repeated, referred to, but only in these fragments. And that balance is, on the one hand, frustrating. But if you do, as you said, Jonas, if you do let that go and just focus on the emotions or on the images that are kind of portrayed or that come across by what these characters are saying, also what they say to each other, whether it fits or not, 
I think that is probably the better solution than to try and piece it together to some coherent narrative. You already said that it might be easier to follow if that is something you should actually attempt to do the play when you see it on stage. And I agree. I really want to see this performed now. This is really what drama is all about, isn't it? Drama, by definition, is a text that is written to be performed, at least according to its most basic definition, I would say. But let us ask, is Crave drama? Is Crave actually really written to be performed? Because as an amateur actor, I would be absolutely terrified if I had to learn these lines. It seems immensely hard to learn such disconnected, incoherent, not really dialogues, but rather parallel monologues, I would argue. And also, it doesn't really have all the trappings of drama. It is extremely short. In the printed version that we had, it's just uh, 27 pages. Uh, it doesn't have any acts, it doesn't have any scenes, it doesn't have any stage directions. It really just has the initials and then the dialogue. Occasionally there's a beat. Occasionally there is uh, a note that somebody starts speaking while somebody else is already still speaking. But can we really call this drama? From a production point of view, this is certainly very challenging. But I think if you see it from the point of view of an audience, this is perfect to be put on stage. This is a very dramatic thing to witness. Dramatic in the sense of you view, you watch. It's only words. There's nothing really happening. But this chorus of different voices, I think, functions quite well when it is put on stage. There, this mixing, this interchangeability, but still the traces of that there are characters behind these ciphers. I think that works on stage quite well. It probably is still very, very frustrating. And there is this one bit where the actors actually stop talking. They only are supposed to shout very briefly, kind of toneless shouting. And I think for an audience that is probably excruciating, not just following this Byzantine dialogue, but then just listen to people shouting. Then again, that is exactly what this is about. This is about very dark things. This is about depression, about trauma, about cruelty. It is probably not too far-fetched to say that this is very Arturian, the theater of cruelty, where you use the stage and the usual stage situation in a way to basically make the audience suffer, to kind of shock them out of their usual sleepiness in the darkened theater room. Though I could also imagine somebody really succumbing to that sleepiness in the theater room if they're presented with such a dense text that is so impenetrable and so hard to follow along. I myself would like to see it performed, but I could not fault anyone who says, yeah, sorry, not for me. Probably. Something I would like to see, maybe, or something I would be interested in seeing this on stage is whether you actually see any development, not just in the characters, whether you can kind of piece them together. But reading this, I had the feeling that similarly to the wasteland, there is a certain movement, a certain development, that certain topics are spoken about in the beginning, other topics kind of grow out of that. In the beginning is very much about the different traumata that people have, exactly this feeling of craving, of wanting things and not getting them, and the pain that gives them in different shades. Later on, it is about life in general, the kind of meaninglessness of life. That's something we've kind of talked about before. There's actually one sentence that uh, could just be directly from nothing. I'm not ill. I just know that life is not worth living. 
This is also the part of the play where there are quite clear hints towards mental disease. There's one list of symptoms. Impaired judgment, sexual dysfunction, anxiety, headaches, nervousness, sleeplessness, restlessness, and so on and so on. That basically is the description of side effects of antidepressants. And the character who this list is kind of presented with says, that's what I'm suffering from now. So this is basically Kane writing about her own problems with depression. But similarly to The Wastelands again, in the end, there is some sense of not closure, but some sense of peace. The question is, is that peace only an illusion? Is it the peace of death, of finally coming to rest there? Is it coming to terms with the cruelty of life, with the horrible things that happen to one in life? It's not clear, but I think there is a development. There is kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis go thing going on in the play. And I don't know whether that is only something that you can read into it when reading it, or whether that is also something that could be performed on stage in a certain way. It's really interesting that you say that there is some sort of hope towards the end, because again, I felt that that was very hollow. It ends with the lines, kill me, free falling, into the light, bright white light, world without end, you're dead to me, glorious, glorious, and ever shall be happy, so happy, happy and free. I don't see that as closure. If it's a closure, then it is a certain, you could almost say, reaching nirvana, reaching non-existence in death, because this actually goes into poetry in as far as there are rhymes. Kill me rhymes with you're dead to me, which is a callback to the beginning, of course, and ever shall be happy, so happy, happy and free. So all of these things are basically related. All of these things are, you could argue, equated as well. So death and happiness are equated. Which is closure of a kind, but again, like you said uh, last episode, that at the end of nothing they find some sort of meaning, and I disagreed. Again, I think it is not really a movement forward, it is more a capitulation, a surrender. And reading this autobiographically, which sometimes is the thing we do, of course you can read this as a kind of recipe for suicide, kind of final respite that you have, where you actually find some sort of peace. Yeah, you're right. This is not a happy ending. But it. I was more aiming at the fact that this is a kind of, yeah, almost like an essay, an essay for four different voices, a very incoherent essay, but it's still one that covers certain ideas and tries to work them out, even though in the end that might not lead anywhere. It leads, it leads somewhere. Hey, I'm writing an essay at the moment about Virginia Woolf. Do you think I could do it like this? Why not? Why not? I think teachers have read normal essays so many times, they'd be glad for some mentionings of rape. <laughs> One last thing that I would like to bring up is the times when this staccato of the different voices is broken up. There are several monologues in the piece, and just judging by the search results you get on YouTube when you look for this, because I wanted to find performances of Crave, and you find a lot of performances of monologues, especially... A's monologue. It happens fairly early on in the play and A just starts talking about wanting to have a nice romantic life. 
and I want to play hide and seek and give you my clothes and tell you I like your shoes and sit on the steps while you take a bath and massage your neck and kiss your feet and hold your hand and go for a meal and not mind when you eat my food and meet you at Rudy's and talk about the day and type up your letters and carry your boxes and laugh at your paranoia and give you tapes you don't listen to and watch great films and watch terrible films and complain about the radio and take pictures of you, you sleeping and get up to fetch your coffee at midnight. And as that goes on, it goes on for a lot longer, C starts saying under her breath, this has to stop, this has to stop, this has to stop, this has to stop, this has to stop. And I find that very interesting. It seems to me that a lot of people identify with A there, with this vision of, oh, it's a nice life, you know, we do things together. But then also, he's just... <laughs> See, I'm calling him a he just because of your assessment. But it also seems like a kind of thing a he would say, I feel, because it's kind of pathetically clingy. I can very much emphasize with C when they say, this has to stop. And it is so grating this, ah, oh, you know, um, I'll laugh at your paranoia. No, you shouldn't. You should take it seriously. And if somebody wants you to stop and go away, you should maybe just do that. I'm not sure if everyone who likes this monologue and uh, puts their versions of it on YouTube really reflects that A is actually being kind of a dick. Certainly. I mean, A and C, they seem to have some sort of very, very unhealthy relationship going on. And I actually found some some places, some pieces, where I could identify with A, where he talks about the, the bitterness, the kind of more depressing sides to things. But again, this is also the man, yes, the man, who has these very elaborate explanations, these nice little stories that he likes to tell, which are very much like creepypasta, basically, very weird stories and you never can shake the feeling that he's implicitly saying something very unsavory with them. There's, for example, one where A says, A small boy had an imaginary friend. He took her to the beach and they played in the sea. A man came from the water and took her away. The following morning, the body of a girl was found washed up on the beach. Again, there's a lot of mention of sexual abuse of children as well. So that is evoked by that as well and the fact that a shares it so nonchalantly makes us dislike them maybe even more and m reacts to that by saying what's that got to do with anything or at least seems to react to it we cannot really tell one more thing about a um it's interesting that sarah kane has said that a could also stand for alistair and that a seems to be modeled to a certain degree at least on infamous occultist alistair crowley and Actually, in the very end of the play, A says the infamous lines by Crowley, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love and the will. And considering his personality, again, that makes sense. I kind of agree with this linking of A to Alistair Crowley because, I don't know, but his next line, Satan, my lord, I'm yours, sort of pushes me into that direction. Hang on, hang on. Crowley was not a Satanist per se. He was um, playing with the assumptions... He was kind of... Okay, okay, I know. That's that's What's notable about A, of course, is that he's also apparently an analyst or critic of literature. Because uh, he also says towards the end, And don't forget that poetry is language for its own sake. Oh, thank you for giving me a literature 101. As you said, he's a bit of a mansplainer, isn't he? Uh, he's basically us, don't forget that. Well, shit. <laughs> Let us come to final judgments, since we are those judgmental A's that we are. 
or a-holes. Is this great literature that you should read? Is it worth your time? I would say yes. But I would also say yes in the context of Sarah Kane's entire work. This is often seen as her most experimental but also most mature play. But if you read the plays she had written before that, there is a certain tendency. So I would say Sarah Kane's entire work is very important, very influential for modern theatre, for contemporary theatre. And Crave is basically only the tip of the iceberg there. So definitely, but Crave might make a bit more sense if you read through Blasted, Cleansed, Theatre's Love and all the other things. So you get a better sense of what Kane is all about and why this piece of writing is, in my opinion at least, quite important. I would say no. I see that it is a great work, and I see that it has its place in the history of drama, but I wouldn't recommend you read it. If you've not been put off by our description of it, then I would say go and watch it. Otherwise, it's really hard to enjoy it. I enjoyed snippets of it here and there. I found one sentence in it that I will definitely try to... Maybe maybe I'll print it out and hang it over my uh, bedroom mirror. There's a difference between articulacy and intelligence. I can't articulate the difference, but there is one. There are these little snippets, these little nuggets of gold. But all in all, it is... Yeah, we have questioned whether it is drama, but maybe it's drama in its truest form, that it is not just intended to be performed, but it is really impossible to appreciate if it is not performed. So I would say reading it is not going to give you the best experience. But if you liked what you've heard, go and seek out a performance that might have been recorded, or go and see a performance, because that will unfold the text's full potential. But what if you actually like characters, a cohesive plot, if you actually want to know what is going on on stage or on the pages of a novel? Maybe there are other things that go in a similar direction and that we could recommend to you. Jonas, is there anything that comes to your mind that you crave to tell our lists? To be honest, not really. This is unlike almost anything I've ever read or seen. And I cannot really think of anything that would go well with this, except for a couple of plays that I've seen. But I don't think that they've been really published. So I think uh, this is not going to be very helpful. I can only tell you that I am probably going to go ahead and read Blasted, which is a lot more conventional, it has characters, it has a story, and it has a story that, from what I've heard about it, sounds very interesting. It's about the Yugoslavia conflict, which is depressing as hell, of course, but um, a very important subject that does not get the attention it deserves, I think. And I want to see and read more of her. This was the first time I read Sarah Kane, really, which is kind of a shame. And I feel, yeah, I, I want to know more. But I'm not sure if I can recommend that. I, I, it's just what I'm going to do. So if Jonas doesn't do his job, I have to do his job and recommend Shakespeare. I actually had thought about recommending something more contemporary, but in my opinion, a lot of in-your-face theatre actually focuses too much on the in-your-face, being provocative for, for being provocative's sake. I think there is one play that delves similarly into these depths of nihilism, of depression, actually putting you in this feeling of 
what it is like to be depressed, and that is Shakespeare's King Lear. Lear has these scenes on the blasted heath that are basically a more Shakespearean version of what is going on in Crave. This feeling of being out there, being subjected to a life that you cannot control anymore, and still trying to make sense of it, and the only way out is basically becoming insane. And I think there is a certain spirit that different characters in Lear have different answers to this problem of life. And it is similar to a certain degree to these different voices here. I think the impetus is very similar. So King Lear. King Lear, of course, is also not unlike Sarah Kane because it has a scene of a man having his eyes removed violently. And the blasted heath is seen maybe as a kind of name giver for blasted. blasted. Oh, that's clever. We're clever. We should, we should all pat each other on the back for uh, that. We should have a podcast. Yeah, let, let's totally do a podcast. Also, read The Book of Lies by Alistair Crowley. Because it is also very fragmented. You will not get anything. But there are some nice jokes about oral sex. So, there you go. What about you? Was this too in your face or in your ears for your tastes? You can complain to us at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can rate us there, which would be very nice. Please, please do that. You can write reviews, or you can also send us feedback and suggestions to that email address. One person who wrote an email with a suggestion to this email address is Bob K. Remember, Bob? He uh, emailed to tell us that we should please not read anything French. Well, ironically, a couple of weeks ago, he suggested that we should read Gargantua and Pantagruel by Rabelais. And I think, yeah. Why not? So that is what we're going to do for next episode. Thank you very much for the suggestion, Bob. And if you have a suggestion, feel free to email in. Wait, wait, that's it? We're going to read just what someone on the internet tells us to read? Come back in four weeks' time for Fifty Shades of Grey. But next week, Gargantua and Pantagruel. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. I always liked Epimetheus more because he really had the short end of the stick there. Your parents call you the one who thinks afterwards and your brother's the one who thinks ahead. Yeah. You know you've got a shitty life. The parents were like, yeah, this one's dumb as fuck. Cookies!